Welcome to the Awakening Podcast. You can find all our episodes on awakeningpodcast.org. We're also on BitChute and Rumble. And I have four other podcasts, the Meditation Podcast, the Speaking Podcast, Learn Polish Podcast, and Crypto Podcast, as well as being a podcast coach. So if you're interested in getting a podcast started, you can find me on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Today, my guest, please welcome Bob DePasquale. I know I didn't do it justice. How do I pronounce your surname properly? Well, Roy, you did you did very, very good. Uh, it's DePasquale, but I've heard all kinds of different ways to pronounce it. So I, I'm not too worried about uh, what you chose there. So <laughs> it's pretty good. It's good to be here, man. It's a beautiful day here where I am in South Florida, nice and early. Excellent. Excellent. So you might let the listeners know who's Bob. Yes, I am Bob DePasquale. I, I call myself a purpose-driven impact maker. I've been through a, quite a few things in my life, and I'm sure we'll get into some of them. And I think it's really important that you use the, the tough times and the struggles in your life to triumph. And I always thought failures were hurdles of success. So I learned at a very, very early age that the, the things that I've been through are, are ways that I can learn and teach other people. And hopefully there's some people behind me that don't, don't have to go through the same thing. And also hopefully there's some people um, that just feel a little bit inspired by my story and, and, and what I've done. So I, I currently work in the uh, wealth management and philanthropic space. And I have a big passion for people uh, helping others with the resources that they have. And, but it's been quite a journey to get here. So I'm sure we'll dive into it. Yeah. So I suppose, yeah, let's, let, let's go into the journey. What, what happened to kind of inspire you to help others? Yeah. So I, we were all 18 at one point. If you're, young, if you're younger than 18 listening to this, then God bless you. You have a whole life ahead of you. Uh, but when I was 18, I, I was going off to university and I was going to be playing football, American football. And I thought I was invincible. Now, Roy, I don't know what you felt like when you were 18, but I thought I was this invincible young guy that, you know, nothing could take me down. I was indestructible. And most people feel that way, I think. And I, I thought I had this injury, thought I had a groin injury. Now, I don't know if you've ever pulled a groin muscle, yeah. uh, but that you'd be surprised how much you use that muscle for in your body. I mean, it's, it can be debilitating. It's hard to walk, stand, turn around, sit, whatever. And I thought I had pulled this muscle. And when you're a freshman in college and you're trying to prove yourself to a coaching staff, you really can't be injured. I and mean, it's not a good thing. It's not a good way to start your college football career. And so the, my, my trainer would have me do these drills. Now picture a three wheeled stool, Roy, and the, the, my rehab for this groin injury was to shimmy across this big old training room. And I mean, at 6, 5, 30, 6 o'clock in the morning, there's 100 plus people in this room. There's trainers, there's doctors, there's athletes, everyone's doing all this stuff. So just trying to navigate my way was actually very challenging to try to do this. And it was kind of painful and very, very tiring. And I was doing it for almost a week every morning. And one point the doctor stood up and said, and, he, and it, he was this little guy, the head trainer, and he stood up, he would stand on this box in the middle of the training room to get everyone's attention. And it was usually really loud, loud music and all this stuff going on. But for some reason, or at least I remember it this way, it got really, really quiet. And he screams across the room. He's like, Bobby, they would call me Bobby. He's like, Bobby, you stop doing these exercises. You need to be back out on the field. And that was a real hit to my ego that the, the head trainer is calling me out for my weakness. And it turns out that that really wasn't, it was really more serious than we thought. I said, to die, I said but I talked to him like in private. I said, listen, Rick, man, there, something's wrong. Like I can't, this is not getting any better. This is not just a groin muscle. Like something's not right. So he actually sent me to the doctor. And after a series of tests, 
I mean, every test in the book, they looked at me from every angle, every picture, whatever, to try to figure out what this was. And it turns out that I, I, I had a meeting with a doctor and right with a urologist right before my parents were supposed to come up for my first game. And they were actually in the car. I got out of this appointment where the doctor sat me down and, and looked at me and said, Bobby, you have cancer. And I was, was blown away. I didn't even know how to react. I didn't even, I, I almost didn't even know what cancer was at that age. And my parents called me, they were in the car on the way to my uncle's house where we were going to meet. He lived up where I, where I went to school and I had to tell them, they're like, oh, how'd the doctor's appointment go? And I had to tell my mom, I was like, mom, the doctor said I have cancer. And like, you could just tell through the phone that she was just, I mean, devastated. And you could hear my dad on the other side too. He knew something was wrong too, just listening to the conversation in the car there. And he's like, Susan, Susan, what's wrong? And so we met back at my uncle's house and we, you know, shed a few tears, said some prayers, tried to figure out what was going on with the world. And it was just a blur for the next couple of days. And so on Saturday, my uncle's best friend came over his house. Now, here we are out of town. My parents are staying, you know, staying in my uncle's house. We've never met this guy before because we lived, this is in New York and we lived in Florida. And he actually handed my parents, he came over the house, handed my parents his keys and said, Bob and Susan, I can't imagine what you're going through. Take my car and, you know, whatever you need it to, to take your son to doctor's appointments, tests, whatever it is. And they were like blown away. Like this amazing act of generosity. Like how could you possibly just pretty much give someone your car? And he left. It was, he was there for maybe 15 minutes. We just met this guy. He gives us, gives us his car, says goodbye to my uncle and the family and says, see ya, see you later. That was on a Saturday. It was actually the day that my first game was supposed to be. Obviously, I wasn't playing in the first game at this point. So my oncologist had told me, I had already talked to him, and he said, you don't drop out of your classes, figure out what you're going to do. If you're going to stay in New York to get treated, you got to continue to kind of live life as, as normal as you possibly can. So my first class was that following Monday. Went to class, whatever, went to some doctor's appointments. Second class, Tuesday morning, I'm living the college life, if you will. I come out of my class and I went to the cafeteria to grab something to eat. And I'm sitting in the, in the cafeteria, I'm eating like a breakfast burrito or something. And, you know, Roy, do you remember before TVs were like flat screens, like this one behind me here, um, they were like tube televisions and they had this, this small, maybe eight, 10 inch television in the cafeteria there on a bracket in the corner, in the corner of the ceiling and the wall. And, you know, whatever's on TV, you're watching, you're sitting there, right? Yeah. And I'm watching the news and I'm eating my burrito, whatever. And all of a sudden a plane hits the Twin Towers in New York City. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on here? So I call my dad. I said, hey, dad, are you watching this? You see it? He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm watching. And we're talking for like less than a minute. And bam, another plane hits the other Twin Tower. And all, I mean, it was just, it was nuts. We're like, what is going on in the world right now? He's like, you better come home. So I hopped in the car. It took me nine hours to drive what was normally should have taken me 15 minutes. I ran out of gas in my uncle's neighborhood. And I have a master's degree in broadcast journalism now. I will never, ever listen to nine straight hours of AM radio again. Um, but I drove that whole way with the tower. And I'm in New York, so I can see the towers burning in the background. And I'm driving to my uncle's house. I ran out of gas in, the neighbor, in his neighborhood. We pushed the car into the driveway. And we were, I mean, we didn't even know. We felt like the world was coming to an end. We didn't even know what to think. We couldn't get a hold of my uncle. He was on business in Denver the night before, supposed to fly home to New York. And my, my aunt was besides herself. 
And finally, my uncle calls maybe six, seven o'clock at night and says, hey, I'm sure you're probably wondering where I am. The phones have been out. I'm safe. I'm in Denver. I just, you know, I, I couldn't get on the plane. They canceled the flight. I'm going to try to get home tomorrow. It's just crazy. And we were like totally relieved. But he said, unfortunately, though, my best friend Tim was in the towers that morning and he died. And we were like blown away, couldn't believe all of what was going on. And the fact that Tim was in the towers, this guy who did pretty much the most generous act that we've ever seen or heard or experienced in our lives just came over, gave us his car, uh, lost his life in the towers. And I was like, wow, I, I, I couldn't believe what's going on. And, you know, Roy, it took me probably four months through treatments. And, you know, I, I have more stories about that stuff, but ultimately it took me about four months to get over my disease physically, mentally, I kind of processed it. I was okay a couple months later, but it took me years to work through those emotions and to really feel what happened to me and all the forces at life that helped me get through all of that. And then it really hit me at a certain point that life is unpredictable, short, and we don't know how much time we have on the earth here, um, but we really need to, to take the time that we do have to be as helpful and generous as possible to other people. And that's what Tim O'Brien did on that, on that long weekend for us. And he didn't know that he was going to pass away, but he knew that we were really in need at that point. So from that point on, I determined that I don't really know how much time I have, but with the time I do have, I need to use the resources that I have to make other people's world better. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's just, I, I don't need 18 years of age. I mean, you're still a child, basically, and, you know, to go through that. So what was going on in your head? I mean, obviously, because normally it's the parents that are, you you, you you see more the fear in them than yourself, you know, because, mm -hmm. you know, with, with a connection like that. Mm -hmm. my, my fear at the time, honestly, this might sound crazy, but I talked about how I felt I would be invincible. My fear at the time, and I, this has some, something to do with my doctor who told me, you have an extremely aggressive form of cancer. It's spread up to your abdomen, certainly not a groin injury, but he said it's also extremely curable. If we didn't catch it, you'd be gone pretty, pretty soon, but we've caught it and I know how to cure it. So I had this confidence. I was not fearful that I was going to die or that cancer was going to ruin my life so much. I was honestly fearful that I was going to fall behind in athletics and academics, just in life in general. I felt like this was a huge stumbling block in my grandmaster plan to be the greatest person on earth. And at that time in my life, I don't know, it was some com uh, combination of ego and arrogance and also maybe a little bit of confidence in a good way, but it, was, it wasn't good at the time. And I, I feel like I needed something to kind of kick me into gear to push me in the right direction. And that's certainly what it was. So it wasn't so much fearful at the time. Then a couple of years later, when I kind of worked through all those emotions and realized how I actually got through that process, and it wasn't me, I wasn't the greatest cancer patient in the world. I mean, Roy, I can tell you, I'm a very, very detailed, pers detailed person. I mean, that's one of my strengths. I have a limited, I have a limited list of strengths. I try to stay in my lane. But one of them is to be detailed. And my doctor told me, he told me exactly how much water to drink, like to the ounce. He told me how long I should be sleeping, when I should be sleeping, what I should be eating and, you know, how much I should be exercising. Like he told me everything. I followed it to a T and yes, I'm sure that helped. It helped that I ate absolutely no sugar, that I went to bed at nine 30 every night, that I got at least eight hours of sleep and that I drank 132 ounces of water. Like 
He told me those things. I'm sure those helped, but those weren't the actual powers that got me through. And so it took those couple of years for me to realize all of those things at work. And then I realized, man, I probably should have been more feel fearful for my life and other things outside of academics and playing football. But those were the things at the time. So it's an interesting question you asked that. Um, a lot of times I believe in life while we're going through things, we may not have our eyes or our minds and our thoughts on the things that are truly important. And it may not actually be a good thing. Sometimes maybe you just need to be a little bit distracted. And my parents and my aunt and uncle, we found out, my cousin and I, they're my aunt and uncle's son, found out years later, actually, that our parents were kind of in cahoots at the time because my uncle, uh, my, my cousin suffers from cystic fibrosis, uh, respiratory autoimmune digestive disorder that's very, very taxing on the body. And he was really, really struggling. He's about 10 years younger than me. And so we were both in a really, really dark place when I was 18 and he was eight or nine years old and he was really struggling with his disease. We found out that our parents actually encouraged us to spend more time together. Like I was really supposed to sleep, sleep, get as much sleep as possible, but they would tell my cousin, yeah, you know, you're up at 5 a.m. and you want to play video games with your big, with your big cousin, Bobby. They would encourage him to go wake me up. And I used to be like, why are you waking me up so early in the morning? But this is some bond that we formed. And now, I mean, he was the best man at my wedding. I mean, I was involved, you know, I was the officiant at his wedding. Like we're very, very close. And that relationship I didn't realize was a strong force in helping me get through this, uh, get through that whole, that whole time. And so my fear at the time was probably misplaced, but it might've actually been helpful. I, I think a distraction is the best thing that can happen when you're going through uh, an illness, because if you're living in your thoughts, you're not helping yourself because the mind mm -hmm. can do so many different things. And I'm actually surprised. You're, I think you've had a good doctor because a lot of the time they don't tell you the right things to do. You know, it's normally, you know, they put you through the system. Like I, I had read, I, I think you went through mm -hmm. the chemotherapy system and, you know, like, but a lot of the times they're not telling you cut out sugar. They're not telling you, you know, drink lots of water and stuff like that. So I think, you know, you had actually, you know, a good doctor recommending the things that that will help you as well. Yes. In fact, so my doctor, interestingly enough, my doctor was my other cousin. So I mentioned my male cousin, Gunnar, his sister was, was, I don't know about best friends, but was pretty close friends with a young lady and she was even younger. So they were kids. I mean, she must've been six at the time. And she, her friend's dad ended up being my oncologist. So we knew once, once the urologist and the other doctors had determined that I had cancer and we told my family, they called up my cousin's friend's dad. And that's how I got in there because he was a very, very good doctor. He was very, very well known in New York there still is still practicing, I believe. And he, he got me right in and he, he was, you know, that type of doctor, he was serving a lot of older people. So I was by far his youngest patient. I mean, they didn't even, they had, they put me in a separate room when they were doing my treatments. And I think this was for, for, uh, for also for mental reasons um, and emotional reasons. They didn't want me sitting in a room with people who were 70, 80 and, and dying, to be honest with you. Um, they put me in my own room. So yeah, absolutely. My doctor was awesome. And the psychology behind what you're doing, like you, you, that was a great way to put it. You don't want to just live in your thoughts and your sorrows all day long when you're going through treatments and you're really struggling physically. You want to give yourself a, a positive distraction. 
Exactly. So you're you're basically through the trauma that you've been and kind of I think when when something like that happens, we 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 really appreciate life. You know, some people mm-hmm. say some people th- think they do appreciate life, but it's like like you said at the start, you don't know. We nobody knows how long we have. You know, we could get hit, hit by the bus in the morning, or we could live to over a hundred. That's just the way it is. And you know, it's just appreciating everything you do. So now you've made it a mission to kind of kind of give back and help others yeah yes yes and i just i always go back and i think about tim o'brien and he worked for an organization called Cantor fitzgerald they're still around investment bank and they were donating time or not time excuse me donating office space to my uncle's foundation for cystic fibrosis i mentioned my cousin has this disease so it all kind of ties in together with generosity and it just was such a powerful time in my life and so they were donating this space to the foundation and office space. And the foundation staff wouldn't get in probably till 9 a.m. or so, except for Tammy, who's a very, very good friend of our families, has been working in, in, in the foundation for years. She was actually late that morning. So everyone, hundreds of people from Canada Fitzgerald were in the office. They perished that morning on 9-11. Um, but no one from the foundation did. And Tammy was actually in the subway a little bit late that morning, uncharacter, never late, never behind. She was actually in the subway that morning and she escaped when she felt it all happen and when saw it was there. Um, but they were donating this space and just, just a generous organization. And then that happened. Um, and I've just always been reminded of Tim and how the company he worked for and the and and personally how generous he was during that tough time. And I've since been, my cousins have since been married now, and Tim's kids were very, very young at the time. And I've had the opportunity to speak with them since then uh, at these weddings, because they're, you know, a wedding is a big gathering. So I otherwise wouldn't see them very often, but I've had a chance to speak with Tim's kids and really tell them how generous of a man their father was. And, um, and I'm always reminded during these times, especially during that time of year, during September, early September every year, I'm reminded of it. But it told me that you know, we all have different gifts, skill, skills, and talents. You know, Roy, you, you're you're an excellent speaker, podcast host. You know, you're involved in the uh, the legal profession. Clearly, like there's just a lot of things that make your gifts and skills unique, and there's things that make my gifts and skills unique. My wife is a kindergarten teacher. That is definitely not my skill, but it's hers. She's absolutely excellent at it in relating to young people and teaching them about the world and life. And so I, the way I look at it like this, if we all have this unique skill set, then we all have this unique ability to help each other and make the world a better place. And it all fits in somehow in this crazy puzzle that I don't think we'll ever truly understand. But with that being said, if we've been given these gifts and skills, then it really there is some obligation to use them to help the world. And so I don't have the same skill set as Tim O'Brien. I don't have the same skill set as my uncle or you, but the things that I do well, I know that I want to use them so that other people can benefit as well and not just myself. And and in fact, I think it's proven there's human psychology I've written about in my book, even though my book is not directly related to this, um, there is information about it, about how the human mind desires to do good things for other people and to support others. So I think it's really, really healthy and it's really, really good for the rest. So I've dedicated as much as I possibly can, my professional life and my personal life to doing that. 
Excellent, excellent. And I suppose, I mean, like you've got all the qualifications. I can see that under your name in the book. <laughs> so, so you, you've like you've worked financial in the financial industry. So, like, I mean, I just know from my own personal experience, there's a lot of corruption in that industry. So, you might kind of talk about what you're aware of in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will not deny that uh, it is a it is a space where there is plenty of corruption. And I think money money can be a very very challenging subject for people. I spent 12 years working with families and helping them work through their, their financial matters. And some of them would come to us and say, Hey, uh, I dealt with a pretty tough scenario and someone, someone gave me a raw deal and I need, I need someone I can trust. And then I had others who, who came in and were just completely stressed about their, their money situation. And so what I found is that a, re- a healthy relationship with money is extremely important it's really more important than the amount of money that you have. Depending on your society and your situation, there's usually a baseline uh, of income or, or resources that you'll need to survive. But if you cross that threshold, I've, I know some very, very wealthy people that have a horrible relationship with their money. They're behind on things, they're uncomfortable, they're super stressed. Uh, and then I've also met some people on the flip side who have very, very little, but they're extremely generous people uh, and they have a very, very healthy relationship with their money. So, you know, I spent... If you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers, and he, you know, he talks about needing ten thousand hours to become an expert in a certain area, and I hesitate to call myself an expert, but I do the calculations. I spent over twenty thousand hours doing this work, and so I wanted to write a book. My business partner and I transitioned away from the firm that we used to work for. I, I worked for them for twelve years. It's been about a year now that we've opened our own firm, and part of the reason why we did it is not nothing against our previous firm. Just people were asking us to to work a little bit deeper with them. And once we made that transition, I realized, well, I have a lot of stuff that I need to get out on paper. Like now that I'm in a situation where I can write a book, I have more time. I don't have compliance and regulatory uh, restrictions as much anymore. I wanted to put this stuff on paper because I knew there's people need to hear it. And, And I had determined that technology and money are two of the most stressful things for people in the world. And when you put them together, it's really, really debilitating. And so that's why the title of my book is Personal Finance in a Public World, meaning we live in this digital age. Everyone's lives are public with social media and the ad space and the communication world that we live in uh, is much different than it used to be. And it doesn't have to be for bad. You know, there's a lot of information about the, out there about how we should stay offline and, you know, not so much screen time. And believe me, I love exercising, getting outside, but these tools are not going away. So why not use them for positivity? And so I felt that with my expertise and all the work that I've done in my professional life over the years, my skills have been built up in this area. So I need to use this area for good. I need to share this message with people. If I'm transitioning out of my previous role and I have a new company and I'm not going to have the time or the ability or the effectiveness that I used to in helping people with these type of things, then I need to get it out on paper so I could share it with as many people as possible. So that's the design behind the book. And then we continue to work in the financial space. Uh, we spend a lot of time now working with generous people, generous families, and helping them plan out their philanthropic efforts, managing their wealth, financial and also influential, uh, maybe their business. That's very, very important. We're still managing those things, um, but we're really, really working heavily with families that see something beyond just the bottom line of their business. Um, is it a trust is the best way of doing that to prevent Uncle Sam from trying to take it off him? Not necessarily. I mean, you know, a trust, a trust is a, is a wonderful vehicle, especially in the estate planning space. That's, that's extremely popular. There's 
gosh, there's so many different types of trusts, but it's definitely not a blanket recommendation. I mean, I think there's a lot, you know, just as I mentioned about people's gifts and skills, I think someone's financial situation is also an extremely unique thing. And that's why we make part of the reason why we made this transition is because we were kind of a mile wide and an inch deep. We, we, our, our recommendations and our process started to become too general, in my opinion. We were trying to put people into situations that we had seen before, when in reality, everyone's situation is different. So a trust could certainly be part of the planning that we do, um, but it's not guaranteed. And so now we're a mile deep and an inch wide. We're serving way less families, but we're able to really get into the weeds and make the perfect decisions for people and actually spend the time on it, right? Instead of instead of just trying to put them, um, you know, kind of the cookie cutter approach. It's just, I don't, I don't believe that it's actually serving people as, as good as they should be served. And if they're, if they're compensating us to do that, we need to do our best that we possibly can to figure out what, what's meaningful and what's going to do the, what's going to do the right job for what they're trying to accomplish. And are people aware of like the amount of corruption in a lot of charities? Cause there's very few that are genuine. I mean, there's a lot of them, it, it, like the charities are set up as a kind of, a tax dodge and it, it, there's others there's like 97 percent goes to administration which is basically paying for their you know like two million for the ceo you know having yes. the cars and everything yeah i'm glad you brought this up too I, I have pretty strong thoughts about this so uh there's there's lots of different ways and no in, in my opinion, there's no uniform, perfect way to measure the effectiveness of a charity. We've done some work uh, with a, a woman by the name of Sylvia Brown. She's a descendant of the Brown family that founded Brown University here in the States. And she's all about helping donors be as smart as they possibly can. And every, every donor has got a different cause and situation that makes sense for them. And so you have to really, really consider in, in our work, we want to take that time. It's worth it to actually do the research on the individual organizations that you're supporting. Um, there's other websites out there like Charity Navigator and different ones that will provide certain metrics and try to measure the effectiveness of a charity. I think they all measure something, but none of them are the perfect example. And you mentioned about administrative costs and different things. One of the most controversial things I think in the space is what charities are specifically spending their money on. And I don't believe that 97% of it being uh, on administrative costs and compensating, uh, highly compensating uh, an executive director is the way to go. But while I also don't believe that lessening the amount that you're spending, you know, limiting it so much that you're not providing a healthy work environment for the people that are, that work for an no, organization. Absolutely. No, definitely. And like, I, I don't believe that, you know, cause some of them, they're get, trying to get a lot of people to work for nothing. I mean, everybody's got their bills and everything. I think if they're paid mm -hmm. a decent wage, there has to be an administration cost and people accept that. And I, I would even say up to 10%. I think that's that's a, a rate that I would think is even decent. So, But there's so many kind of tactics that they do. They're, they're sending out the letters with all the different things. And as long as it's giving, you know, a certain percentage return, they'll keep doing it. And I, I don't, I think that's a not, not a great way of actually the way that they raise funds as well for some of the organizations, the way they do it. No, it, it's, it, it's to, for me, the most important thing is, is the organization making the impact, right? 
it, are they, and, and it, like I said, it can be hard to measure this. So for example, like if an organization is saying, well, you know, we passed out or, or we raise enough money to generate a, a million meals for the hungry last year. That's great that you got enough money to create a million meals, but are the million meals actually being distributed? Are a million homeless people receiving the meals? And what is the result of that? Are there less homeless people? Are they more healthy? Are, are, you know, are people's lives actually in a better situation? And it's, it's, it's hard to look at a, a charity's website and just go by the, the metrics. You know, it's that that that, because obviously they're going to put forth the best ones like they're going to say they're going to put they're going to put on their website, you know, we save this much money or we raise this much money and those things are important don't get me wrong, but those aren't the final answer Are, are they inputs outputs or results and those are three three much much different things. What are we, we, we took in, we, we took in a hundred million dollars in donations last year. That's an input. We, we created, uh, like I said, a, a million meals, or we developed a new wheelchair so that people who are, uh, d- uh, have a disability can, like, those are great, but the results are a hundred thousand people have new wheelchairs and they're in a better situation in their life or a million meals were served to people. And now the homeless population has a 10% less chance of, of being ill, whatever it is, but like, there's gotta be results. I think it's so important. So if you're a donor out there, you're someone who's super generous and you love, and, and it doesn't even have to be just financially. We're obviously we're talking about financially here, but you love giving your time, your talents, or your treasures, whatever it is that you're giving to, you gotta figure out, you gotta measure the results. If you really wanna know if an organization is being helpful. And what I would love is if everybody in these organizations and supporting them would try to go a few layers back. If we look at the homelessness, which in turn is led with from the financial, especially in 2007, because it kind of rippled across across a bit later, the amount of people that were lost their homes through that became homeless. It was all orchestrated. And, you know, there's people which... You know, I put my hand on my heart. I admire people that, you know, dedicate themselves to helping the homeless. But the reality is there's a group of people that actually are causing this and the governments are going along with it. You know, they're not, they're, they're supporting the, the actual banks. The whole lot is all orchestrated and it's a, it's a shame, but it's going on internationally. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I know, obviously I know the situation here in the U S the best I've done some traveling and some mission work in other places. So I've seen a little bit in other countries, uh, but every, you know, all the situations are different. I just know that the families that we work with that have the most, the most intention around what they're doing. So it's not just the tax break. I think you kind of alluded to that earlier, whether it's uh, an individual, you know, making a donation or it's someone trying to create a whole organization in a fraudulent manner, but it's not just a tax break. It's they actually want to make the impact. You may have heard the term do well by doing good. There's other ways that you can support other causes, right? It's not just financial donations and just cutting a check anymore. Uh, people want to be involved. They want to, they want to be, they want to actually do, you know, they want to give their money, but they want to do. They want, they also, in some cases, want to invest. And you may have heard of the term impact investing um, or ESG investing or socially responsible. There's all different ways that you can make a positive influence without just your traditional writing a check to a charity and looking for the tax break. 
in fact, I think a lot of times that people who are more intentional, they make a bigger impact and they're more likely to give more. So if you're uh, someone out there working for a nonprofit or charity organization, it actually is statistically can be statistically proven in, in many cases that the, the people who don't just cut the check and move on and not even engage, the people who actually come out to the facility, participate, go on a trip, support, help give their time and their talents as well, are proven to have a deeper relationship with the organization and they ultimately end up giving more money. So it really helps on all ends to be more engaged in your giving and to be more intentional about it. And I, you would be really, really surprised, I think. I So for example, in my life, I know uh, affordable housing and adequate housing has become a kind of a passion of mine. That's one of the causes that I really care about. And I've given, you know, financially in different situations to try to help people. Um, but it wasn't until I actually went somewhere and helped them build a home, even though I have no control. I mentioned my limited skill set. Construction is not one of them. So you might think it would have been a waste of my time or their time. But actually, it was I'm so much more engaged and more, more likely to participate more and to give more to those causes because I was actually there and I felt it. And I understood the problem and I felt like instead of you know writing a hundred dollar check, it was worth it to try to raise thousands of dollars to go to a foreign country and actually see and feel what was what the problem was. And now I've done it multiple, multiple times. So actually putting that extra effort in has been emotionally and in a way spiritually good for me and obviously really beneficial for the people who, who needed homes. Fantastic. And like, we're going through strange times at the moment. There's a lot, like the, mm. despite the companies, uh, you know, the energy providers, profits going through the roof, everybody's electricity and gas bills all around the world are doubling, if not more. Their gas bills mm. are going through. People are struggling. I mean, most people don't come out and tell you, but a lot of people are living week to week or on a monthly basis, and then they're out of cash. What kind of tips can you give the people that, you know, they just need to try and get over this hurdle? Well, I, I think when you talk about the situation that our, our world is in, we're in a very, very unpredictable time right now. I mean, there's a lot of pundits out there. Part of my professional life is predicting the markets and the cost of energy. That's that's what I do. So that that you could say that that's my expertise, as I mentioned earlier. But even the experts and the people who spend their days monitoring this stuff and researching things, it's very very unpredictable. And so for me, when I think about unpredictability, the best the best way to handle that is to have a plan in case something does happen. And the number one thing that I think is lacking for people is protection in case disaster does happen. And it is admittedly challenging to create your own insurance, if you will, uh, when you're in a situation like this where things can be tight, uh, supply chains are backed up, costs are going high, especially over here in the States, inflation has been an amazing, amazingly consistent uh, negative topic over the past couple months. And so, the having that protection in place. So doing your best to make sure that you have an emergency reserve is so simple, but probably the number one most overlooked thing that I've seen. Most people can understand that they need to spend less than they make. It's not, it's simple math. If I make a thousand dollars a month or a thousand euros, whatever it is, then I know that I can't consistently spend 
1200 euros or $1,200 because I don't have that type of money. Most people can understand that it, those who don't usually are using a credit card or something that maybe distracts them and they don't, they don't actually take the time to do the math. Uh, but if you can get that concept down that you've got to spend less than you make, the next thing is to, to, to prepare for emergency. And that's why an emergency fund is so important. So the number one tip I would say is make sure that you have at least three months. Most people would recommend six, three to six months expenses in case something happens. If the price of gas shoots up or if you lose your job or the, the worst possible thing could happen from an income perspective, are you protected to be able to do that? So work your way into that scenario because if something does happen, and hopefully it doesn't, and if it doesn't, great, you just move on. But if it does, you're protected. And that, as I mentioned, is probably the single most thing that people, that trips people up. They're not intentionally trying to get themselves into debt and spending more than they earn and putting themselves in a horrible situation. It's something comes up, something happens. So do your best to work towards having that, that protection there in case it does happen. And that's an emergency fund. Then when you want to talk about other types of saving and investing. Uh, that's kind of a that's kind of the next step that you want to make sure that that you you take for long term. But in the short term, tough times like these, do your best to 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 build up that emergency fund in case something crazy happens. And then if it doesn't happen, and your emergency fund is getting too big, eventually you're going to cap it at that three to six months. And now all of a sudden you have this excess money that you've been putting away that you can do something else with. You can invest it. You can put it somewhere. Um, if we wanted to get into really into the weeds here, uh, Roy, we can talk about disability insurance and life insurance and different different other forms of super catastrophic protection uh, or protection from super catastrophic events that you might that you might need. But you asked for some basic tips. Number one is spend less than you earn, and then build that emergency fund in case something crazy happens. And like just on say life insurance, because I know my parents um, is a big company in Ireland, Irish Life, and they were paying paying into it all their life, and then they were kind of coerced into signing something else. They basically lost all all that I had built up. Oh. Yeah, and I, I hear a lot of that going on. This and the same with like the insurance. They have so much trickery to not pay out. So like, uh, is there ways of like, what would you advise? Because, for example, anything you're doing research, if you go into Google and you ask a question, it normally gives you kind of, I don't trust Google anyway, I use Brave. But basically, it depends on the question that you ask, the search points that you find out. But for somebody to try to do their due diligence on an insurance company or life insurance, what, what would you advise them to, to do? Yeah, I have a whole chapter in the book about this. And the, the technology is amazing these days to be able to, to, you can get information easily. So you can do all the research. Um, when you talk about life insurance, it, it's absolutely a complicated subject because there's many, many different forms. Um, some of them get a very, very bad rap. Other ones are more generally advised. And once again, going back to the situation of uh, the, the concept of every everyone's situation being unique, I believe that's the case. And I think most insurance products are good for somebody, but they're oversold in a lot of different scenarios. And my, my advice is always to find a person that you trust and has experience in the industry. Now I'm biased, obviously, because that, you know, I, I am that person for a lot of people. Uh, but if you can't find a person or you're kind of just doing your initial searches, you do want to look at the ratings 
of an organization. And there's different organizations that provide the rating systems, but most 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 companies will will offer their ratings, and it it basically rates the solvency of an organization. Are they capable of paying claims? If you die, what are the chances that this company is going to have enough money to pay out your family? Um, so you want to get a you want to get a firm that's rated pretty high, you know, A A plus uh, at least. Um, you know, is usually my recommendation because then you know, God forbid, I mean, you're looking at, you're going to be gone. <laughs> so there's nothing you can do about it if something happens. The But when you actually go to purchase one, there's some ways you can do it online right now. And it's very, very, it would be very, very hard for me to describe all of the different points that you can, you can look into and the different parts of an insurance contract that are important. You want to read all of those. Uh, but most people should probably go through a broker or someone or an advisor or someone that can help them make the right decision because there's a lot of fine print and different rules in the in, in insurance industry. The most simplest form of insurance that the life insurance that most people have probably heard of is called term insurance. And it strictly insures you for a specific period of time. It's the least expensive. Um, it's also the least likely to pay out because insurance companies know it's not very expensive. So they run their numbers. So statistically, most people will not collect. Now you don't want to collect on life insurance because that means you've died prematurely. So don't, this is not, this is not a negative. Uh, I'm not telling you not to purchase this form, but that would be the one that I'd say is probably the easiest to purchase online because you don't really, it, it's as simple, it's pretty much as basic as you can possibly get in most cases. You're paying a, a very, very small amount, usually monthly over a period of maybe 10 to 30 years. Some, some uh, firms will do five years but it's usually caps out at about 30 and you pay a very small amount in order to get a very, in order for your family to get a very, very large amount in case you pass away. Um, so it probably pays out at least here in the States. I believe the number is less than 2%. So it's not likely to happen, but if you're going to purchase online, <clears throat> that one's probably the easiest to understand. All the other forms can get super, super complicated. And to try to find all that information online, I feel like could be super daunting. And like I know in Poland, I don't know if it's in the States as well, but you can, when you do have a claim, you know, say insurance, there's companies that actually represent you. I forget the, what they're actually called, but, you know, so that they, they get around the trickery because like I know somebody now uh, in the last year, they got they got knocked down and like they were at a pedestrian crossing. So like the, the person was found guilty and everything. And they were laughing her like her life is ruined. Like, you know, she broke so many bones and everything. And I was expecting her to get a few million. Like, and they're offering her like in, in dollar terms, about three thousand dollars. And you yeah. know, I, and like sometimes I know the the brokerage firm or whatever that's representing you take a percentage, maybe it's 10 or 15, but they will actually get the right amount that's due to you. Yeah. So absolutely, there's a lot of attorneys and firms that will represent you if, if that's the case. Now you're dead. So it's your family's got to deal with it. So it's it's a little bit. But different. No, I'm on about different insurance, not just the, 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 oh, the okay. life insurance, but actually, you know, for when you have a business and something goes wrong, or personally as well. Yes, yes. So if you're looking at business like umbrella insurance, or or it could be, you know, auto insurance is a big thing. There's a lot of fraud and, and issues in that case. Yes, your your insurance company will. In fact, if you get in an accident with someone else, when insurance companies start battling, oh man, that that can that can be brutal. So you know, I, I'm not privy to the the league, the rules, the legal situation in every country. So I'm sure they're different. 
but but I know that for a fact over here in the, in the states, there's a lot of attorneys that specialize in that, and you would want to. In fact, I know a couple. You would want to uh, consult them for sure, and they will take a percentage. But if you're having quite a problem, uh, and you're talking about millions of dollars or even hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think it's it's highly highly worth it. Uh, but but the the rules in the world right now are getting better and better for the consumer. So you should be able to get most of the, the important questions answered. Actually, not you should, you will, you definitely can, but it should be easier to get those questions answered now. Like, what do I do if I have a claim and what is specifically covered? And you should never buy a policy if you don't know what the specific coverage is. Otherwise, those type of things can happen. Then you're going to be super confused. You should always know exactly what's what's covered, so that if God forbid something does happen, um, you can you you can be confident in your proof that you should be covered. And if it gets to the point that the insurance company is fighting you and you can't, and your insurance company and the other person's insurance company can't come to an agreement, and you need to hire an attorney, then then you got to ask the attorney what their experience is. Do they have experience working? with this form of insurance. Like if there's someone who does a lot of disability insurance claims, but they've never worked on an auto insurance claim and you got and you got in a car accident, that's probably not the right attorney. You got to find the person who's got the experience in that specific area because they are very, very detailed. Talk about unique. Each type, there are attorneys that, spec- uh, that their specialty is just one type of insurance. Yeah, and I, I think that's a very important point because you know, I advise um, the, the person to deal with a certain attorney and, and thought they knew better because I knew yeah. the attorney specialized in that, in claims. And yeah, it makes a huge difference. And like, finally, with the book, are you do you cover uh, like the crypto for in that? Yes, we do. I have a whole chapter on fiat and cryptocurrency. Fiat's the, the monetary system that, that kind of dominates the world right now. Um, but we talk about crypto, talk about technology. I mean, the whole book is, has a technology uh, kind of layer to it. So yeah, absolutely. There's a whole chapter about crypto, how it works, what it means, you know, a little, a little bit about the different types of crypto, um, but really about the whole decentralized finance system. Okay. Well, excellent. So listen, Bob, really enjoyed talking to you. You might let people know how they can get in contact with you. Yes, I am at BDEPA, B-D-E-P-A, on most social media platforms. Uh, I'm pretty active on Instagram, Twitter. Uh, but you can go to my website, bobdepasquale.com, and you can find the book, social links, my blog. I have a podcast. It's all on bobdepasquale.com. And then if you're interested uh, specifically in my business, I'll tell you to go to initiateimpact.com. That's our, our wealth management and philanthropic firm. So if you have questions about that stuff, would love to connect with you over there and i my dms are always open I'm, i love to talk to people so thanks roy thanks for having me man this is uh you asked some good questions i, I love talking about this stuff excellent yeah and i'll make sure i put the links both on the audio on the video thanks very much bob awesome so that's all for the awakening podcast you find all the episodes on awakeningpodcast.org as mentioned we're on BitChute and rumble be sure to give us a thumbs up five star rating and subscribe it all helps until next week take care